1: these
0: books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored well hello and welcome to tfm's local books and comic show for star trek and i'm just one of the hosts here matthew rushing and with me as he is every single episode the one and only casey pettit casey uh how are you doing today
1: i am doing well it's a beautiful day and uh you know we've got some uh comics to talk about and uh looking forward to our feature here uh where we're gonna get to talk about uh, some some lost era of our uh for picard so you know it's always a good day when you're talking about picard
0: so what you're saying is is that it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood mm. a beautiful day in the neighborhood yes I won't, and I will be yours. Sing, but no. yes, uh, <laughs> well, we've got actually we've got a massive news section for you. Not only because we have a ton of comics that have come out, uh, but we also have some very interesting uh, book news, some publisher news, a cover. So much happening. So before we get to that, of course, we'd love it if you would uh, rate and review the podcast over on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, of course, subscribe wherever you're listening to this and you'll get the podcast as soon as it drops. We would really appreciate that. You can also find us on social media under the moniker Trek FM. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek Of course, we're on Instagram as well as Twitter under the name Trek FM. We're also online At trek.fm where you can see every show that we're doing here on the network and you can help us out by going over to patreon at patreon.com slash trek.fm and becoming a supporter of the network like casey pettit as well as greg rosier who are actually associate producers here of literary treks and they make sure that not only literary treks but the entire network can keep running we could use your help It's pretty expensive to put this network together, so go over to Patreon at patreon.com slash trekfm and become part of our team. So Casey, we uh, mentioned there that there is some licensing news here for Star Trek Fiction. Um, Simon & Schuster licensed the publisher of Star Trek Fiction uh, has been sold by Paramount Global to KKR, which is a private investment giant um and that's very interesting um because we honestly don't know of course at this moment what it means uh for star trek books even though we do know that there is a new star trek book coming in february
1: 2024 so i I don't know how do you feel about this i mean i feel like this is something that's been coming up for a while i i think that you know, they were, there's been speculation as to if Simon Schuster would lose the license to Star Trek novels at some point, there's always negotiations happening. And, you know, this just seems like a business move for Paramount Global. Um, you know, I think that, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that Star Trek books are going away. Like you mentioned, we got a new one coming out, uh, coming in February of 2024. And, uh, all, all this means is that, uh, Simon and Schuster has a new parent company now. So hopefully they'll get to keep the license. Hopefully we'll get to see more Star Trek books, uh, on the docket in the coming months and, you know, into the coming years. We want to keep our, our favorite authors, uh, occupied with, uh, getting us some new stories out there. So, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I, I saw this on, on, uh, Facebook somewhere, I think, uh, right before we started recording and thought it was pretty interesting. And of course, there's a lot of speculation already happening. And I'd be curious if the authors even know what's going on yet or what this Mm -hmm. means, if anything at all. So I guess we'll see.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is interesting, too, because obviously this has been in the works for a long time. uh, And so I'm wondering if this is, you know, just a way to infuse uh, simon and schuster of course with uh a lot of equity um because you know you're you're being bought by something that hopefully can keep this book publisher going um you know uh so yeah it's um it's gonna be really interesting uh I mean they're being bought for one point six two billion dollars in cash so uh you know obviously paramount uh, most likely it i can see here uh from media watch is uh, um gonna be probably paying down debt with that money um but hopefully this is good news just for simon and schuster as a company though Uh, to be uh, supported for a long time to come, which is hopefully then a good thing for Star Trek books. You know, it doesn't seem like Simon Schuster itself will change much. Uh, And so who knows? I mean, I actually take it as good news that we Mm -hmm. have this new book coming out uh, by David Mack. And the fact that it's being released in February seems to me... To indicate that we have, you know, some sort of deal then in place, which, you know, I, I think is great. Uh, but that's just my speculation. I, I can't I, – to me, it wouldn't make sense really for them to be releasing a new book if, if there wasn't some sort of deal in place.
1: Right. Yeah, it seems like if if something – if licensing was going away or something, they'd just cancel anything in progress probably rather than – Letting it go. I mean, we've seen that happen before, even with the Kelvin timeline books that got shelved for, you know, originally it was kind of an an indefinite period. And eventually we started to get, we got to start seeing those. But, you know, at the time the authors got paid and thought maybe these books would never see the light of day. So the fact that we, it still appears that they're still moving forward with David Mack's book in February is promising um, especially to the point where Gallery Books, which is the the arm of Simon and Schuster that publishes these, actually revealed the cover for Star Trek Picard Firewall by David Mack today. And um so I mean once again, if, if Star Trek books are going away, we wouldn't see a cover probably. So so I'm taking this yeah. as a good sign.
0: Yeah, no, me too. Uh, I mean, and the cover reveal here for the book Firewall is, uh, I would say, absolutely beautiful. Uh, It's a gorgeous picture, of course, of of Seven of Nine. uh, And I love just the the kind of the eeriness of it. I think it invokes uh, a real sense of of what the character is going to be going through, which is this feeling of, you know, kind of aloneness. uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, it even gives us kind of a slight, picture here of um, you know what the Fenris Rangers emblem is, which is kind of cool. Uh, you know emblems play so much of a part of Star Trek. And so I I really like this cover. It fits very well, of course, with all the other covers that we've had so far, too. So I I couldn't be more pleased with that. And in all honesty, what it does is just makes me very excited to read this book uh, because this is a part of this time period that I very much wanted uh, revealed in many ways. Like, uh, you know, I, I wanted
1: to know what happened to Seven of nine. Yeah, I think uh this is uh, an exciting story that we got coming out to have a cover. You know, like you said it it, it matches well with the covers that we've gotten for the other Star Trek Picard books the, with the kind of sole focus on one one or two characters, you know, in this case it's Seven of Nine. Really nice silhouette of her and um yeah, it just gets me super excited to uh to read this book and you know, pick it up when it comes out. You know, I and the things that they've been doing with these covers, like you said, it's kind of overlaid with this Fender's Ranger symbol. And, and I feel like there's just a lot to uh, kind of even dig into with this cover. So I think people should check it out and see what they think, you know, judge the book by its cover. Well, I
0: definitely would judge this as being a success. Uh, yes. And I think partially just because, to me... It really does fit in the line of, you know, the Star Trek Picard covers that we've gotten in the past. You know, it has this uh, wonderful uh, kind of painted look to it, which is really nice. And uh, so, no, uh, and again, I'm just very excited to to get uh, this book and be able to read it. I, I can't wait, uh, you know, and... And in many ways, it just makes me even more excited about the idea of hopefully being able to get the Star Trek Legacy series so we can continue these characters. That's if the strike ever ends. So, Well, Casey, we have a ton of comics. We have five different comics we're going to be talking about. First one is The Dog of War number four. Uh, And this, you know, they have gone on a mission to retrieve uh, the Borg artifact that, that that has gotten stolen uh as well as the dog um that has also gotten stolen latinum was also taken and um i thought that this was because i think if i'm not mistaken uh, are, i got the feeling like there are five issues in this
1: or, or are there six there's five or six i would agree okay i, don't, I, don't I can't remember much. so yeah.
0: Yeah, but this felt like a really good setup for uh, kind of completing this part of the story, but then kind of setting up, if there are five or six issues, you know, the the finale, basically. And uh, I thought it was good, you know. Um, I, I continue to like this series, again, mainly because I feel like it fits so well with the, the time period that they're playing in uh, of Deep Space Nine. Uh, and so, I, I mean, I... I don't really want to give away too much from this issue because
1: I feel like in honesty, people should just read it. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I mean, I, you know, I couldn't agree more with what you said, you know, the, the story itself fits so well, uh, you know, within the series during the Dominion war, kind of earlier in the war, you know, the artwork is still um, pretty on point in, in this issue. And, Um, you know, to be honest, I, you know, we've, we've mentioned this before. The whole idea of, uh, you know, a corgi or just any kind of dog at all being this, you know, a central figure of a comic series seemed kind of strange. But at the same time, it's worked out really well. Almost, I'd say, to the point where the dog storyline is really becoming unnecessary, because I am hooked by the rest of the story with this Borg artifact and what's going on with that. And, and especially kind of the, the kind of cliffhanger that this ends on, uh, that this issue ends on. Um, I'm pumped, I'm ready for the next one. So, you know, whether it's, whether we have one or two more issues left, I'm, I'm in it. And, you know, let's make sure the dog survives. But uh, other than that, like, (laughs) I want to see what happens with this Borg artifact.
0: You know, I I think that the interesting part of the story with the Corgi is how it kind of exemplifies the struggle that they've been going through to not lose, you know, basically their humanity through this Mm. Um, and how war can do that when you get all obsessed about everything that's coming at you. And so... You know, I think that that's been really well done. But like you said, the the whole other part of the storyline, and especially, I think, like you mentioned, the cliffhanger that we leave this on is fantastic uh, because it it, it opens up this whole other front of the story where uh, things could go very south, of course, very quickly. Now, we all know it's not going to because we know (laughs) how the story wraps up. Uh, But I think it still makes for an an interesting... um, mission that these characters are on during the dominion war and i think in some ways it's done well enough to the point where i'm not thinking as i'm reading oh i just know this is going to play itself out i'm actually finding myself very much invested in the story uh, and just wondering how it's going to work itself out not feeling like, oh, I just know it's going to work out. Like, and that to me is, you know, where tie-in fiction, again, I think does its best work. If you get me invested enough in the story that that's how I feel, that to
1: me is a well-written Star Trek story. I think, um, you know, we've we've had novels like that too, that, uh, you know, the stories themselves are so gripping. We know we're we're not going to lose any of our main characters, but when they're put in jeopardy in a story and you are right there with them and you can't wait to turn the page or get into the next issue or whatever it is to see what happens. That's that's kind of the pinnacle of good storytelling. Like you said, like this tie in fiction, like we we know everybody's gonna survive. No one's gonna die on this mission. No one's you know, like they've got to end right. up they gotta put the toys back on the shelf. Yes, um, but the fact that we're hooked and and there's people's lives on the line, you know, is is really good. So, yeah, I mean, I have been pleased as punch with this little mini series that we're getting because it's it's just been uh, working out very well. I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's interesting because to juxtapose that with uh, the storyline that we are getting with uh, motion picture echoes. Uh I'm I'm really fascinated to hear how you feel about this one because I I don't think that for me personally I'm quite as invested in this story as I wish I was.
1: Yeah. I am I had high hopes for this one, actually, just because it, you know, takes place during mm-hmm. the motion picture era. Absolutely. But it's kind of all over the place. Um mm-hmm. I feel like especially Especially in this issue, I, I feel like it had a decent start, but this issue, especially, there were a lot of intercuts and scene switching, and and everything. It, it was kind of jarring reading it, like you know, flipping a page, and now we're in a different scene with a similar um, similar conversation taking place, or at least that you know they're meant to kind of lead into each other. And it's just uh, you know, like I said, it's it's pretty jarring, and the. The artwork in these ones, you know, it's really important for especially these tie-in comics, especially Star Trek ones, we've got characters that we know and love. And if they don't look like the characters, it can be very hard to really follow the story or be invested in the characters because they don't—they just don't look like themselves or feel like themselves. And I keep forgetting in this one that I think the character's name is Akris. But that's like Chekhov's double, and neither Chekhov nor this guy look like um, the Pavel Chekhov that we know and love, like any of the Chekhovs.
0: Mm-hmm. That's
1: actually an incredible
0: point, point. Uh, and one that I find myself... And everything you said, I'm just like, and nobody can see me, of course, because yeah. we're podcasting, but I'm like nodding my head. Yes. Yes. No, I totally agree with you. Like, because I've been feeling that same way, unfortunately, about this, uh, the series. And and I, 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 to me as well, I think you hit on something that's, uh, it's not just the artwork, some of the artwork I've liked and some that I mm-hmm. haven't, mainly, I think you nailed the issues that come around which are when characters aren't looking enough like the character they're supposed to be and that has not necessarily been uh helpful but on the other side of this I think you also made a great point that I felt like that the editing of this is just not as smooth as some of the other comics have been I think many of the comics for uh you know this Uh, these series do a great job of kind of bringing you along in the story uh, and finding a way to, you know, bring you from scene to scene in a way that feels very reminiscent of one of the series. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I think that this one has not done that one, has not done that as well. And therefore, just like you said, you kind of feel just a little bit sometimes like, it's almost like whiplash happens.
1: I feel like. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I um. I I don't know that I can really. I, obviously, we're gonna keep reading these ones. I don't remember how many issues these ones are supposed to go either. But uh, I, if you, if you really want to read it, maybe wait for the omnibus later. I, I don't know. That's. I mean, and there's just story elements in this too. Like the more I think about it, the more confused I get. I forget that there's this whole Bajoran orb element of this story mm-hmm. that I I don't ever remember where it's going. The this one ended on a cliffhanger that was so contrived that you know it's kind of like the last one we just talked about, with the Dog of War. There's this. We, we know that they're going to put all the toys back on the shelves and no one's in danger. And at the end, the cliffhanger for this one, I kind of don't care um, mm. because I know it's going to turn out okay. So,
0: No, I mean, I think that that's a really good point. You know, again, this is one of the things that uh, you have to be really careful with, you know, when you're doing tie-in fiction is that, you you know, you have to make it so that, as we mentioned with the Dog of War, where – I forget that that's going to be the case mm-hmm. and that therefore in forgetting that that's the case, I'm invested enough in the story to continue reading it, even though I do know it is absolutely all going to be fine in the end uh, because I know how this story ends. And and like you said, we know how this story ends as well. Um, and yet it's, it's just a frustration to me that this one can't seem to quantify, to, you know, uh, I, I don't know. It just it it can't seem to quite capture what it needs to. Um and and I think maybe part of that too is uh, you know, we talked about this with um uh, the whole idea of being shown and saddle up hmm. in Strange New Worlds, you know, Cardassian and Bajoran. We had this argument online with some people or whatever. Um, but you know, it, it, this comic was actually kind of a reference point for me when that came up in that issue because here it's a surprise to Kirk, this idea of Bajoran, what's that? Mm-hmm. You know, they don't know what that is. Uh, and so here I just find myself, like you, it, we're, we're almost like, we're kind of like messing with canon in this one in that way. Uh, and, and it so it's a little bit, I guess, frustrating to me that, that we're doing that. And so it doesn't seem to fit as naturally with the series either. And so, yeah, this one just kind of leaves me somewhat cold, I guess, which is, I I, like you, I was really hoping to love this because I think this time period is so rife for storytelling.
1: Yeah. It's not often we get to see the uh, pajama uniforms either. Exactly. Exactly. Um,
0: which, you know, uh, Just not as good as they could have been. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so Star Trek 10 uh, is right before here with the Day of Blood, and it actually pairs very well with Defiant 5, which we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, But this gives us the resolution to uh, the crew that is trying to rescue the Orb of Creation and the... Trial that Cisco has been on, and we left that in a cliffhanger where he's about to be shot. Uh, and so, what did you think? Because this one actually, in many ways, wraps up a bunch of storylines as we dive into the Day of Blood crossover. How did you feel like it did in kind of bringing that to an end and kind of transporting us, you know, to our next big mission, which is the crossover?
1: Yeah. Uh, in my notes, I put, it's a fine conclusion to the story so far. <laughs> it's, um, and I use the word fine. I mean, it's the, this series so far has actually been pretty good, I think. And, um, you know, having the trial of Cisco, I, I've kind of warmed up to it, um, to come out of it, finding out that the trial itself is a ruse was pretty interesting, kind of a, not like nothing like what I was expecting, um. I was a little, um, not to get too spoilery, but I I was a little, um, sad when they introduced a changeling just to kill it immediately, like on the same page or like the very next page. But, um, but I, I, um, I think they've done a good job so far in these 10 issues, getting ready for the day of blood series. It's kind of getting me ready, ready for it and kind of pumped for it. Um, but also I'm, I'm I'm also looking forward to seeing where they go with the series after Day of Blood, because that's yeah. going to be a short-run series that, that the Star Trek ongoing series is tied into. But um we've, mm-hmm. we've wrapped up a lot of that. We're going to wrap up Day of Blood, so I, I'm, yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. I think they've done well with the characters they've used, and um, yeah, we'll see where it goes. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I felt like like you in many ways. I thought that this was a great wrap-up to uh, everything that we'd had. You know, I I actually really enjoyed the reveal, like you mentioned, uh, with the trial. Uh, and it was such a Cardassian spin yes. to that. I was like, that's great. Like, this feels so in line with what we know of Cardassians, and to find out this was all a ruse, and, you know, this idea of the Cardassians working very diligently here, you know, Damar's nephew or whoever this is, uh I can't, I honestly can't remember, so, you know, sue me, uh, <laughs> but that in a very Cardassian way, they're working to rectify a bunch of the problems that they realize they got themselves into. In fact, I think that was the most fascinating thing. You have that that uh, page where it's just the speech that he gives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that speech is taking responsibility for Cardassia's actions and, and, and the fact that they are responsible for starting this war – uh and getting themselves into things in the in the Dominion War that have you know led them to this point um and now they're taking responsibility on you know cleaning up the mess that they had made uh and and, and in many ways take a very decisive action in taking out people who would work Towards continuing, uh, continuing to create, you know, mayhem and chaos and incite war, uh, in in places where you know the Cardassian people are are looking to move on, uh, and so I, I thought that that was a really well done. And then, of course, you know, you have the wrap up with the other storyline where it's actually Cisco who ends up coming in to save the day. And then, you know, they take the orb back to Deep Space Nine and he gets the message from Worf saying, hey, we need your help, Uh, which, you know, I thought all of that was was great. So, yeah, I'm like you in the sense that I feel like this series has done a a great job of being exactly what it said it was going to be, which is we're doing Avengers Star Trek and 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 being outlandish in the way that comics are completely outlandish, and I think living up to that and not expecting it to behold really to any type of canon or whatever, just kind of go for the fences in craziness, I'm all here for that, you know uh I appreciate that so i'm I'm really enjoying it well defiant five too is is one that picks up the storyline for where we left off from that um and it actually gives us. A lot of answers that help explain a lot of the things that are happening on Kronos and with Kales leading into the Day of Blood, which I also found terrifying and fascinating (laughs) uh, to finally figure out how in the world Kales himself is orchestrating this whole thing. And basically, he's doing it through Ketrusel blood. Red, Red instead of white, which is a, a drug that he's addicting people to that are creating this this over-adrenaline in Klingons, which, of course, leads them to bloodlust. Uh, and so I thought this was really good as we move into the Day of Blood finally giving in to
1: um, – finally leading into where, where we've been going this whole time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean for for issue number five of the series um, – I thought I actually liked this one probably better than star Trek number 10, just because of the advancement of the story. It leads, like you said, directly into day of blood, which is where we've been going this whole time. Um, we also just get a lot of good character development, which we've had some of so far, but I Mm -hmm. feel like it's been somewhat lacking. And so this time we get a lot more and, um, including lore who i'm i'm really, i'm really curious to see where they take lore and he seems like he could be on the verge of being kind of a good guy or an and you know anti hero or whatever you call that uh but he maybe seems like he is still a villain but maybe just one that wants to not let sila win I'm not really sure but I'm okay with it, and I'm I'm really excited to see where they go. Um And then you know we even get amongst all of this, you know, Worf. The whole reason he broke off from Cisco's crew was because he was concerned about Alexander, which kind of came out of nowhere because we've never seen that from Worf on TV or anything. But you know, in this issue especially, his biggest concern is at least to, uh, ultimately to save Alexander from what's going on here. Um, You know, he sees him at Kalis' right hand, and he's heavily involved with this. But to see Worf as the concerned parent, you know, is something we haven't really ever gotten to see before. So, um, you you know, I I keep saying it, but I'm curious to see where they take it from here. I'm, you know, hooked on this one, and um, I think that they've done a fantastic job with it.
0: I like all of the points you made because I think you really did bring out what this issue does a great job of is, is, you know, we're using these characters, you know, and we know now in canon where many of them kind of go because we've seen Star Trek Picard. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's this there are a lot of interesting questions about a lot of characters that were just kind of left on the table. Uh, you could do things with like a row or somebody like that. And so I really appreciate the way in which, like you said, digging into that, you know, I, I felt like, you know, Star Trek deep space nine had done a good job. I felt like of, of renewing that relationship between Worf and Alexander and Alexander, maybe kind of feeling like he finds his place more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I feel like this one does kind of come out of left field, but then to know that, you know, he was being manipulated with drugs as well, I think makes this a very interesting storyline, uh, to me, you know, uh, just, you know, living in a, in a part of the country where I'm kind of confronted with the way in which drugs can very much hurt people, uh, is, uh, you know, really brings to light a subject I think is important, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I think that this was a fascinating thing to learn. And, you know, we end issue 10 of star Trek and defiant number five with the conversation of Worf, you know, reaching out to Cisco and saying, Hey, look, I know we've got our differences, but we need your help. Uh, and we need to work together on this. And so I think, I think, you know, leading into the day of blood, number one, we are finally here, then, at the first big crossover, and goodness, it uh, to me, uh, with what happens in this issue, uh,
1: it does not disappoint. No, it does not. It's, um, you know, it. <laughs> the thing that I hadn't totally put together, and I'm sure tons of readers out there put it together long before I did, but, you know, we've got two crews made up of... You know, it it wasn't lost on me that B'Elanna was on one crew and Tom was on the other. Um, It somehow never registered that we got data on one and lore on the other, uh, that, you know, even Cisco and Worf, you know, kind of, you know, we've got like really close friends or, you know, in the case of uh, Tom and Bolana, a married couple, even got Spock and Scotty, you know, on, on different crews that now get to come together and they uh, they literally pair off in this in this issue and and get Rowan and Shax which is awesome you know they clearly know each other and um you know are, are somehow connected uh not just by being Bajoran, but you know through their uh shared experiences and everything but um man Explosive first issue you know we've got uh you know more uh you know dealing with this drug and um you know the race to catch Kalis. and again, you know Worf and Cisco have to kind of come to an understanding with each other, which Cisco now understands a little bit more that he's kind of had a a reconnection with Jake about what Worf is going through or what Worf may go through if he loses Alexander. And so I think we're uh, at the start of something pretty cool here. uh, That's going to continue for, I think five more issues, I think, or four or five more issues. And um, man, yeah, this, you know, there was a lot of uh, hype, I guess, in the previous issues leading up to this one. And it doesn't disappoint.
0: No, I I mean, everything you said, like, I'm right there with you. I felt like the way that we kind of uh, create this massive disruption of Kronos, you know, with this basically a civil war, you know, by mm-hmm. those that are, you know, uh, f- following K-Less, you know, and of course they're being driven by, you know, enhanced drugs is crazy. Um, I thought it was interesting, you know, seeing um the the desire for these enhanced drugs will remind me a lot of uh, project 12 i think it is and in, in uh, strange new worlds you mm. know that uh, mbenga had created i that's think that's right, what yeah. it's called if i remember correctly uh you know so that whole idea, um, and of course, you know, tying in with the Ketrosol White and this being Ketrosol Red, which is meant to you know enhance uh, these aggressive tendencies and Klingons uh, to the point of bloodlust. So all of that I thought was great, and like you said, you know, having this combination of crews with the Theseus and the Defiant, and you know, you have all these interpersonal relationships, which is fascinating to me uh, to see them all play out, you know, between Tom and Blana and uh, you don't really get Scotty in uh and Spock, unfortunately, but you get Spock and Tulir, you know, Worf and Cisco, you know, all of these things where we're we're putting these these characters together, which is is really fascinating. And, you know, then what's happening there on Kronos um and the way in which you know this could spread across the galaxy uh and completely disrupt uh the you know, peace that we have after the Dominion War is uh terrifying. And so, um, yeah, I mean it, and and the way in which this is subtly then playing too with, you know, the Orb of Destruction and the Orb of Creation. Uh, to me, you know, I've always loved the, the explanation the exploration of the bajorna culture and, you know, with the prophets and all. So I that's one thing that I'm super excited actually to get more of as we move forward. So I, I think this is a, to me is a very successful start to the day of blood series. And I'm just kind of, I feel like on the edge of my seat to see how this is going to play out because in the way we're doing this story, anybody can die, anything can happen. And that makes it a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's uh you know i'm i'm glad we're out of the mirror universe the klingons are pretty interesting to explore at this point especially this Kales that you know we we haven't gotten really much of throughout the shows this this uh clone of Kales. and uh so for him to be the one that's kind of leading this pseudo revolution against all gods in the galaxy is is pretty cool and you know it's a way for us to explore the Klingon uh the Klingons as a culture, as a warrior culture. Uh but then again as our our crews are coming together and then I'm assuming splitting back apart again at some point somehow. Uh we'll, we'll see where that goes. But uh definitely uh worth worth some time to uh to read these and you know get into the series if if you're at all interested.
0: A hundred percent, Casey, and I think uh, maybe it's time uh, we dive into our feature and discover Picard's Buried Age.
1: I'll grab my shovel.
0: Well, Casey, uh, after a extensive run of books that we were not in love with, uh, we decided to try out a book in the Lost Era. And this one deals specifically with Picard in his lost era between what we know of his captaincy of the Stargazer to his captaincy on the Enterprise. So we are going to be digging into Picard's Buried Age in the Buried Age by Christopher L Bennett. And because this book is about that transition from his time on the Stargazer to the Enterprise, I, the first thing I wanted to know from you because we haven't talked about our thoughts on the book really much um and how did you feel like this does in that specific purpose of filling in those gaps of you know how we get Picard from and we had the Stargazer books too um you you saw them uh, specifically uh the Michael Jan Freeman books mm-hmm. uh and so we kind of know some of that history and of course we know Picard being kind of a different person by the time he gets to be in command of the Enterprise. So how does this fill in the gaps for you?
1: Yeah, honestly, this does a pretty good job, I think, because we literally start with the kind of the loss of the Stargazer and the fallout from that. And we end, you know, effectively with our you know, scenes from All Good Things where he's uh, arriving on the Enterprise for the first time with Tasha. And so, and we know from the show, too, that there was a span of time there that it's not like he lost the Stargazer, was court-martialed, and then just automatically given command of the Enterprise. So, you know, this this book had kind of a, a big task for it to span as much time as it did, um, especially, you know, in, in – kind of how the story progressed, you know, the things that Picard did and why he changed, I guess. And, you know, just kind of uh, at the outset, I would say, yeah, I, I think it did a, a pretty decent job of filling in these gaps and, uh, you know, giving us a, a, a story that kind of merits the attention that Picard does. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I I think one of the things that was really nice to go back and reread this book because it has been quite a long time since I had um you know I I read this book when it came out uh and you know it was one of those things where you know so much time passes and I've read so many Star Trek books that in in many ways I forgot how a lot of this book played out just because of that um uh, which in all honesty you know uh, happens quite frequently for <laughs> me just because after a while, in many ways, you know, it, it, I feel like and, – and this is not really a criticism, honestly, of Star Trek books. But there are just so many Star Trek stories now from the shows to the books and everything else. It can be difficult for me to kind of keep in my mind yeah. um, exactly how all of these stories play out. You know, this this book is uh, from 2007. And so it definitely been a while. And I think the first time I read this was maybe – 2011, I think that's what I at least had on Goodreads. So that said, I think like you, you know, the, the the most interesting part about this is that Picard is a character that we know so well, especially from TNG. And then, you know, the books that we had by Michael Jan Freeman kind of presented us with a Picard who, in many ways, was much more easygoing, much more laid back uh and even in this book of course mm-hmm. Picard is very much like that as well at the very beginning with this mission where of course we get the Picard maneuver <laughs> and you know he saves the crew of the stargazer and you know you what's 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 most fascinating though is the way in which i felt like this book i think It's best thing that it does for Picard is to explain to us why he's so reserved as captain of the Enterprise when it comes to his crew because of the ways in which he's basically been betrayed Mm -hmm. by two major people in his life. Uh, And those two betrayals lead him to very much cut out the relational aspect uh, with his crew. Other than, you know, trying to be uh, a captain that they can come to and have conversations with. But, you know, being somebody who doesn't really share his personal life with anyone anymore. Uh, And I, I thought that Bennett did a great job of, you know, giving us a few different instances where basically people have kind of betrayed that where he's allowed somebody in and then they, you know make use of that um very well especially just right at the start of the book Mm -hmm. during his trial
1: yeah i mean i'm really glad that there was yeah more than just kind of one event like that because especially somebody like picard he's not someone who changes who he is uh based on one little thing i mean we even saw on tapestry like you know how how Kind of reckless he was as a youth, and even even that, mm-hmm. like getting stabbed in the heart, wasn't something that changed his life forever. Obviously, it had an impact on his life going forward. To where if that didn't happen, and he right. was always his his normal self, or that we know him now, um, you know, things would have turned out differently. But you know, having multiple events, getting you know, between um, how Philippe Levois treated him during his court martial. And I mean, especially for that, you know, she's saying she's just doing her job, but it seems like it's more than that. But, but for him, it, it's a huge impact on him. And then he gives his heart away to Ariel in this. And, um, you know, and, and when the betrayal comes there, he even questions, you know, was it him or did, you know, did, uh, did Ariel kind of, um, almost uh hypnotize him or you know um make him fall in love with her for her own plans or did he do that but but regardless of of that you know he's you could see him throughout the book just becoming more and more guarded like we know him and for i feel like legitimate reasons there was it wasn't like i said it wasn't just a singular event it it was Meaningful things that have happened in his life that we, as the reader, even become invested in this relationship with Ariel to to where I felt bad for the guy, you know, when the betrayal finally does come. So, I I agree. Bennett has done a, a great job here of 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 taking us through that kind of time and seeing these kind of almost micro changes, but then making it make sense for us like why he's so different by the end
0: mm-hmm. yeah you know i i think that you know too, at the beginning there with philippa and and the way in which she turns on him i mean it's just so sadistic really yes. the way that she uh and 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 she's uh, it's kind of gross too, the way that she has no qualms about uh you know taking on picard like this and she's so out of order, you know, I, I mean, uh, the, the way in which she's so sold out to her job to, to try and prove that he's responsible for something that he's not responsible mm-hmm. for, uh, and that he legitimately, you know, uh, saved them. Uh, and the, the, the crew of the stargazer. I mean, I just, the whole thing was, was absolutely 100% gross, Mm -hmm. uh, you know? And then of course, like you said, you know, you compound that with then in this book, uh, his betrayal by Ariel. And um, it's, it's something that's really interesting. and, And, and there's also this thing I thought that was really fascinating of, you know, Picard, Because he does not see himself as somebody that is capable of becoming someone who would lean into uh, a feeling and and a motivation like vengeance, uh, he does fall into that. And that I, I think the book goes to show for him that you can never think so highly of yourself that you can't see yourself doing something. Because that's when we become susceptible to those type of things. That we, you know, if we want to be a person of character and morality, we constantly need to be vigilant against these kind of things. Um, and be- because of, and, and you know, the whole book kind of is is as much about our fallen humanity, mm-hmm. our human frailty. Right? We're 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 never going to be perfect, and so therefore. Um, you know you can't think of yourself as someone who can't become someone that you wouldn't even recognize uh and and I found that was really interesting to me
1: yeah i agree the um the trials that he's put through in this book um he he's almost letting his failure especially with the stargazer but even with um ariel and her people He's letting those failures, if you want to call them that, define him um because he's gotten so used to being kind of this great captain who, you know, took command of the Stargazer when the captain was killed and became the captain of that ship for 20-some years. And, um, you know, got so focused on his failures that especially with, with Ariel and her people – Letting that lead to this vengeance. I mean, it, it, he personified Ahab in some ways in this book and, you know, chasing the white whale. And, you know, he, he realizes that obviously towards the end, but, and, and with help along the way, but he cannot over these years let go of the fact that he failed and he has to be the one to fix it. Um, you know, to the point where he's left Starfleet. He comes back to Starfleet. He's doing whatever he can to position himself to um, to essentially exact vengeance, but to really uh, make up for his failures and thinks that the, the that the way he's going about it is the best way. And um, it was you know a lot of great character development for him there to see to see right. all of that.
0: No, I, I'm glad you brought that up because you know the idea of failure and what we do with failure is such a part of this book and yeah. and, and what we realize and, and I like that you point out too, you know then bringing up the idea of Ahab uh, because we this book I think plants that seed that this is a part of who Picard is to be, kind of become obsessed with fixing his failures. Uh, and that, if he can 't fix his failures it's it kind of drives him crazy uh, and what we see here is that then him and ariel who 's um uh, man Roth i think manth uh it, you know however you want to say it, you know she and her people are two sides of the same coin uh and there was this this beautiful quote that I thought, uh, you know, really stood out to me at the end of the book, where Picard is kind of sharing something that is the culmination of a lot of thoughts that have been percolating for him from conversations he's had with Guinan at this point, and even at this point with Counselor Troy, and he says, "I mean, sometimes we must learn to accept that we." we're simply not meant to succeed at everything. We must accept our failures and we must forgive ourselves for them. Otherwise, otherwise, he went on ruefully, we may become so obsessed with our efforts to repair our mistakes that we are blinded to the other priorities and end up causing more harm, first to ourselves and eventually to others. And, you know, to me, I think, There's something really great about this book in the sense that it is allowing us to realize that a lot of times as human beings, we learn more from our failures than we do our successes if we'll allow ourselves to actually learn from our failures. Because there are going to be times when we can't fix what we've broken. We can't fix what happened. We just have to find a way to grow from it and move on. And that's one of the biggest complexities of what it means to be human. Uh and I thought that that
1: was a phenomenal part of the book. Yeah, definitely great messages in here and you know, it's it's kind of true to to a lot of the things that show up in Star Trek throughout the years, you know, on screen, especially Um, A lot of times we are seeing episodes that bring up something out of somebody's past, a past mistake or whatever. I mean, think of the Pegasus, um, the episode where the Admiral comes back um, to meet with Riker to find the old ship that Mm -hmm. they um, worked on the cloaking device um, illegally and covered it up. And, you know, that failure, you know, of um, Riker to act – in the moment is something he's dealing with at that time in the future. And so, you know, I love, right. you know, we bring that into this book too, because um, it, it's something we all deal with. Like you said, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge part of being human. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's really great, you know, in in, in the Star Trek literary universe um, we get so many great stories. We get a lot of action pieces and a lot of character development things like that, but it's, you know, Star Trek is a lot of times about these messages that we get or kind of the analogies to our own lives. And so, having that in this book um, Mm -hmm. was so great to to have. And it's not just this kind of romp that we're, you know, reading to uh, connect a couple time periods just for the sake of it, that there's actually something really deep here is great.
0: Yeah, I think that you, you mentioning that reminds me so much, and, and you know I think we come back to this a lot uh, here on the network, but it's it's one of those things that Kirk says it in Star Trek V, I need my pain. What he's saying is, is I need my failures. I need to have learned the lessons of those failures so that I can move forward so the, and that carrying them with me is what allows me to be able to do so. And to me, I I find, you know, that whole idea fascinating. I I just I, I love the way in which Bennett sets up this character who, you know, TNG in many ways kind of makes a saint out of Picard. And then I think, you know, the films in many ways start to give him a little bit more humanity back so that when we get to first contact and. It's not Saint Picard. He's somebody who has is struggling with, you know, this Ahab tendency yeah. of obsession. You know, this is one of the places where I think this book actually helps in making TNG and then it fit together with, you know, what happens in first contact much better. Uh because we now understand that this is actually something that pokhar does struggle with and therefore it's something that <laughs> you know um is not just is not something that is surprising then by the time we get there uh, yeah. which i thought you know is is really
1: nice yeah, and i mean even with his his love life I think even Beverly is mentioned in here and it might've been Guinan that said something to him, like, didn't you have a thing for her? And he said in here, um, and I spacing on whether it was before or after, like kind of everything that went down with Ariel, but he, he admitted even this early on that Beverly will always be his best friend's wife. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so even more, it's tying it to, you know, there was always this kind of will-they-won't-they they throughout TNG until we get to, like, Season 7. Um, and, you know, at the beginning of TNG, that was still a pretty fresh, you know, wound for him, losing Jack and um, and then all the failures now here from this book and, you know, with right. love especially. So, um, you know, just once again, tying it all together.
0: Yeah, no, I think uh, that's a, a great way to uh, kind of piece all this together where you've just got this character who is uh, so much more complex. I think, um, you know, I, I do think that that's one of the the struggles of the series is that, you know, there's just not enough complexity to the characters, unfortunately, uh, in a lot of ways, because there wasn't allowed to be. And, you know, this allows there to be more complexity, mm-hmm. which uh, I think is pretty fantastic and i'm i'm really glad that um we're allowed to explore these characters in more detail and i think it makes it much more interesting than to to have that so we have this whole new race of the manlaroth um i think that's how you say it again i don't know so, so i'm sure. sure somebody can correct me if if they don't like it but um this is a, a pretty fascinating Race because this is a race and it's part of this mystery in his studies because he decides to go and earn a doctorate uh, in archaeology um, and this is a race that's from six hundred million years before the twenty fourth century uh, and they had become a group dedicated to basically being helicopter parents of the galaxy uh, and wanting to connect races together, uh, and keep them from, you know, going down the most destructive paths, uh, and, uh, you know, fostering peace. But it's, it's peace that, but it's peace that's based off of a bit of coercion because they're able to, uh, sweet talk people into basically doing what they want. um, And they decide, in their hubris, to not only try and connect this plane of existence, uh, but other planes of existence that transcend the plane we live on. They create a device that can do that, and when they turn it out, they basically wipe out the entire galaxy. And that's where this big kind of extinction event during this time period had come from that Picard was studying. And so... I'm fascinated to see, you know, what you think of them as a species because, you know, I mean, Christopher L. Bennett is no slouch when it comes Mm -hmm. to creating new
1: alien species for us. Yeah, and this is an especially unique one, I feel like, in our literary works that we've had, and especially, you know, we've never seen anything like this on screen. Um, it's, It's... it's really an interesting way to take this because you could have just taken any old um race like the Organians or the um the Metrons or you know the Q even like that you could take an, any of these that are on a different plane. Mm-hmm. You know this this almost could have been just a Q story but it made it so much deeper by having right an alien race and like you said they with because of their hubris they want to bring everybody together and end up accidentally practically destroying everything um and it's just such a good again a good kind of analogy because they even compare it later in the book to the federation and how you know once once they become kind of a villain in this story they liken what they did to what the federation is trying to do as far as bringing everyone together reaching out in peace, ultimately, accidentally causing destruction, Um, you know, and and the Manreloth, basically, once they come back into being in the 24th century, try to do this again. They're actually trying to – actually, they're almost trying to reverse it by keeping everybody at home and saying, we'll just give you all the knowledge you want and just stay home, Um, which obviously doesn't sit well with any of our people, but – to to have a, a race of beings like this that's so old um, is interesting because, um, you know, I just finished reading the first Wheel of Time book. And so if you think of time as the wheel, you know, like they mm-hmm. were kind of an in, yeah. you know, earlier, uh, you know, an earlier time period, basically, uh, before other civilizations eventually rose up, you know, going through these periods of history. But you know through the science of this book they come back and uh it's like i thought the best way i i thought this was that the, these people were introduced in the best way possible by having ariel as someone who didn't really remember her past like she kind of had some ideas but it slowly was coming right. back to her over time so that we're learning at, about them as the same this, at the same time as she is so it's mm-hmm. we're not just getting a big info dump about this uh about this species about this race you know we're getting it in small pieces which kind of creates a mystery so you know all that to say like i thought I was i thought these were really well done a very interesting race um and just added a lot of uh you know mystery and and complexity i mean they're not just bad guys they're not just good guys they're complex mm-hmm. beings which i thought was really good
0: yeah i think that uh, to me one of the most interesting parts of this was that their intentions are good uh you know i i made the joke about being the helicopter parents of the galaxy and and right their intentions are good but the problem with their intentions is that they um, don't allow people to uh, learn the lessons for themselves, earn the the knowledge that they're getting. You know, I, I think um, there's a lot to be said. And, and you know, uh, we just had the movie Oppenheimer come out, so, you know, when you think about this idea of. You know, um earning the the knowledge for ourselves and what it means to do that, and and then you have more responsibility when it comes to that, Of course, Jurassic Park is a perfect example of that type of storytelling as well when we're talking about that um, and that by not allowing people to live and experience life in all of its fullness and and that means making choices that could lead to disastrous consequences you're not actually allowing them to truly live Mm -hmm. Uh, and to to actually um i think truly have a full life and also um to be able to to learn things for themselves that truly make them not want to do things again you know our experiences are what make us who we are as beings and that does not mean it, you know and and they use the analogy of parents with children and that doesn't mean that parents don't do all they can to raise their children well to teach them well to hope that they'll learn from the parent's experience Mm -hmm. and other experience that they see without actually having to make those mistakes. But, you know, you train up a child on the way it will go and you hope that they won't, you know, screw up in the end, (laughs) right. Uh, To the point where they, they can't make it. And, 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 and yet that's exactly what this race is wanting to do to the galaxy is to keep them from making the worst mistakes and or, you know, uh, foster peace, but it's a, it's a peace that's forced on people without them actually having the understanding as to why peace is better, mm-hmm. right? And and so I, I think it's just really fascinating. And, and again, I think Bennett does a great job here. Um, you know, I think it does become slightly cumbersome when we're talking about, the mega years, you know, with all of these millennia and, and millions of years that has passed, that can become a little bit difficult. We'll talk even more about that in a, in a little bit, but I I did think that this was a fantastic race that allows us to be able to see how even the best of intentions can pave our way to hell, right? Uh, And that's exactly kind of what happens, right? They have the utmost of intentions here of trying to really connect the galaxy. And when they do that, they destroy it. Uh, And yeah, I mean, it's
1: that's phenomenal, right? That's a great, great story. Yeah. And it kind of ties once again back into the idea of failure and trying to fix your own mistakes, you know, with them when they come Mm -hmm. back and. You know they've destroyed the galaxy already, and now that a kind of a new one has risen up over the these you know millennia um they they kind of want to stop the expansion, and you know like I mentioned before they're they're afraid that the federation's just gonna become a new version of them where they end up accidentally right. just destroying everything and I thought that um there was one 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 place kind of right in the middle of the book that um you know when they're basically. You know talking about this um data that's basically stored in a black hole somewhere or on the event horizon and and that if we just get this information out, we can give you all the knowledge you ever wanted and Picard is actually concerned of what humanity might do or what any uh any of the you know myriad alien races in the galaxy might do and and says he wonders about the prime directive implications except that we are now the primitive civil- civilization and are we really ready for this kind of knowledge um you know and, you know are we intelligent enough mature enough as a people to handle what you offer to use it with care and resist its temptations and you know that's uh, you know a little bit more of the Picard that we know you know kind of the more seasoned um you know, contemplative Picard, I guess, that we have from TNG to kind of really recognize that. And yeah. and the Federation might agree, some other civilizations might agree that we're not ready for that. But then I have to look at Star Trek Discovery with the sphere data that came from a hundred, you know, it's got a hundred thousand years of information and one thing that show I feel like failed to do is explore what are we actually going to do with all this knowledge that this uh you know entity has stuck in our computers cuz they you know go into the future to protect this data and then they don't ever do anything with it again and so you know i think having even if they'd said something in discovery like this you know this is where i think this is really strong in this story is picard or at least somebody speaking up and saying That's great that we can get all this knowledge, but we're not ready yet. And, you know, like you were just talking about, we need to learn this ourselves. Like, we can't just get handed, we can't have it handed to Mm -hmm. us. That's why we have a prime directive. Right.
0: Yeah. I think that's the thing that is really interesting about this is that uh, you do see the ways in which knowledge is not always better. Uh, Too much knowledge can be something used to destroy ourselves. And so being aware of that is an important thing. Um, And because, again, it's, it's really the Jurassic Park lesson. You know, if you don't earn the knowledge yourselves, you probably haven't learn the consequences of how that knowledge can be misused in a way that can be very damaging. And I think that's the thing to me that's uh, so fascinating about this story, right? And, um, you know, it, it's it's also one of the things I think that, um, you know, and I think it's pretty clear from this story and from others, right? Like, if you... If you don't ever, like, trust, you know, if you're a parent, you don't ever trust your children to make decisions on their own and to learn from their mistakes, they never will. Yeah. So, uh, you know, don't be a helicopter parent. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not going to be helpful for your children in the long run, right? Um, we all have to learn some point from failure. And so I think, you know, that's a, that's a really powerful story. Uh, and I, I mean, I think this book does a great job of of touching on it. Now, one of the things too that we kind of mentioned a little bit there, but the science of this story, uh, and and Christopher L. Bennett is somebody who understands all this stuff. Uh, you know, we're talking about you know the the actual physical uh, science of of these things. The the and. I don't, you know, uh, and so I wanted to ask you how you felt about that, because there's a a large portion of this book that is dedicated to talking about the intricacies and the realities of this type of science. And how did you feel about that? Does that work for you or did you find yourself getting bogged down where you're like, I don't even know what this means?
1: <laughs> yeah, it was um, it definitely goes deep into the science, which You know, on the one hand, I can see that a lot of readers might enjoy that. Um, You know, one of the things about Star Trek is, even though it's science fiction and and, in some ways can be pretty fantastical, uh, you know, one of the things I've always loved about it is how it's as grounded as it can be for science fiction. You know, even the shows have science advisors and, you know, trying to make sure that um, they aren't. Fully diving into fantasy, but um, I will say that this book did go a little deeper than I'd probably care for. Uh, as I'm reading a Star Trek book, I'm I could have I probably could have done with just a little bit of techno babble to explain some things rather than uh, you know explaining how a black hole works or um, you know, how the the time variance between um, you know, where the man reloth were. I was going to say stored, but I guess that's kind of what they were, um, you know, how they were frozen in time and how they communicated with them, even though their times were going at different speeds. Like it it obviously talked about enough about it where I can at least speak a little bit about it, but um, it, it went pretty deep and um, the book wasn't overly long, but it it didn't probably need to be quite as long as it was with some of the science, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I I believe that Christopher L. Bennett's a pretty smart guy, and uh, he's, you know, if, if he's nerding out writing this, then I guess good on him.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I'll say this. I, you know, look, I have no problems with, you know, trying to have real science at the heart of, you know, Star Trek. That's always been one of the things that, you know, you've tried to do. Although still, this is all make-believe at the same time, <laughs> right? Uh, and so... I think there's a fine balance between that, and I think that this one, the balance is completely off. You know, Mm -hmm. in all honesty, there's just way too much ultra science talk that a majority of people aren't smart enough to follow. (laughs) You know, uh, in all honesty, you know, I know a little bit about some of these things, mainly from, you know, Star Trek and some of my interests in, you know, space itself and that kind of stuff, but... Like it's very layman centered, right? And I don't really know of anybody who uh, other than somebody like a Bennett or a scientist who really understands this stuff when you're writing it out. Um, And so I I feel like there needed to be a better balance in that side. Um, Again, it's not like it's bad or anything, I think it what it does is that you just get lost in it and it's like okay I just start skipping over all this stuff and I know it like we're we're doing like real techno babble here but it just becomes techno babble and in some ways I think that's why Star Trek invented techno babble <laughs> because you can give a couple of quick words for something and then you move on with the story but in all honesty science is not at the heart of Star Trek mm-hmm. the heart of Star Trek is is exploring the human condition. So I, I think this is just a place where the book kind of misses the mark a little bit and, and gets a little bit too lost in, in trying to be too scientific. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'm sure people yell at me on, you know, Twitter for being like, what do you mean? Star Trek being too scientific guys. It's a story about characters and how we see ourselves in their situations. That's what this is for. You know, it's all supposed to be metaphor for the human condition that we are experiencing. It's not meant to be a science lesson. If you want that, go to science class. Um, (laughs) So, (laughs) but I think that it's not a terrible thing uh, to have. I think there's just too much. So, um There's a lot uh, – there's a ton of Easter eggs in this book because it's Christopher L. Bennett, and I mean he has a categorical knowledge of Star Trek in a way that I think most people don't, which is phenomenal for his books because he's able to lace in all of these Easter eggs. And sometimes you could just miss them completely, Mm -hmm. and other times they're right there. But this – you talked about, you know, we end with that scene – of Picard arriving on the Enterprise. And so in this book, we'll see Data, Troy, Yar, Janeway, <laughs> and we even see Q at the very end. Um, and we realize actually Q is been pushed to find Picard because of Ariel. So, I mean, she's got one more thing that Picard could uh, blame her for, (laughs) but what did you end up thinking about the way in which he weaved all this together so that he gives us an understanding as to why Picard picked
1: these people for his senior crew? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is when I I can't remember, I, I think Janeway was one of the first ones that we got, but as far as who ends up on his crew later, I don't remember exactly who we started with because they were actually woven in. I I feel like pretty organically into the story. I mean, the first you know the first one, or maybe it was when he you know met Data. I was like, well, this is pretty convenient. But then as as time went on, and especially as as, as we start meeting more and more people, we're getting. Um, Picard's thoughts, like when he sees Yar on a planet, like, you know, in, in combat, basically, he's like, wow, who is that? I need to know who that is. And, and and you start to realize he's he's already building his crew. Like, I don't even know if he realizes it at first, but, you know, say, I want to say he even meets Jordy at some point, um, you know, and just wants to get him on the ship. He doesn't have, you know, a space in engineering for him, but he's got to get him on the ship you know, Worf, um, he's, you know, he wants to, and some of these are just briefly mentioned, but, you know, even Worf, he's like, I want him on the bridge. I want him to learn all sorts of things. He wants to be in security, but uh, I want, I see something in him and I want him to be well-rounded. But, you know, all in all, it, it was actually just... It wasn't a trope, you know, having all of these people. And, you know, it's a Lost Era book, so we want to see other characters, not just, you know, Picard or somebody. But the way that these characters are used here, you know, between Data, Troy Yar, all the rest of them, and seeing that by the time he becomes captain of the Enterprise, he's actually thinking back to people that he has worked with over the last few years and thinks and thinks about who he could use to build the best crew that he can. And um, you know, even with Yar, I think he has to kind of uh, you know, call in some favors basically to get, get Yar on his team. And um so I I thought that it worked out pretty well and and the characters that he used more than others like Data and Troy um i thought were well utilized you can even start to see some growth in data from kind of this childlike being to a little closer to what we're seeing him as in tng um but yeah overall i i feel like they were used pretty well and you know if you're going to set up tng if you're going to you know end with him coming on board the enterprise We know that a lot of these, you know, senior officers weren't just assigned to him. So it was kind of cool to see how he's picked some of them.
0: Yeah. No, I I definitely agree with almost everything you said there. Um, I think maybe the one that kind of I felt like maybe was a bridge too far was the whole Q part. Uh, And again, that Q's conversation with Ariel on this, you know, next plane of existence is what kind of causes him to... Uh, go find Picard and put him on trial. Uh, I thought maybe that, uh, yeah, that one just felt a little bit like too much. But, you know, interesting here uh, that if, at least according to this book, if he had had the opportunity, Janeway would have been a part of his crew. Uh, So, you know, I thought that was um, something that was, was very interesting and fun. But no, I thought that they were all introduced well. And woven into the story well and like you said subconsciously or even unconsciously Picard in some ways is collecting these people in his mind that he will then pull on to be a part of his crew of the Enterprise uh, once he accepts the Enterprise and you know I mean uh, and, and it made sense too as to why with the story that happens with Data and Data uncovering the virus that Ariel had introduced into the galaxy class ships and then saving those ships basically from destruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why he would trust him when other people might not, because he's had this experience with data and he sees what data is you know, capable of same thing with uh, his relationship with counselor Troy and why, you know, uh, sh- he would trust her as well. Um, and be willing to share, you know, his feelings because they've gotten pretty deep in this book. And so I thought all of that was great. Um, and then, you know, a person that we haven't mentioned, but, you know, one of the big parts of the story is his relationship with Guinan and how, you know, they've gotten to know each other and, and about, even in some ways, I think she's the most benevolent version of the, uh, Parent still subtly nudging people in ways that they should go um and part of that is because she knows the future and because of what happened in time's arrow and so but i i really enjoyed getting to explore her relationship with picard in that way and i thought that that made for uh a really nice, you know, it's not an Easter egg, but it's just a really nice story point that allows us to understand as to why Guinan would come and be a part of the Enterprise crew and work and Ten forward. Uh, when you know she seems like such an enigma, this uh, kind of answers some of that enigma.
1: Yeah, yeah, she was really well utilized here. I'd never read the Stargazer books, and I know she, you know, pops up in there, but you know. She was very well written and very similar to how she appears on the show, like the Guinan that we know, who never, she never gives advice outright or tells Picard exactly what he needs to do. She always just kind of nudges him, and to see her in that role here, knowing that, you know, when when she runs into him in this book or you know she you know comes to him. She recognizes him as closer to the person that he is when she met him back in the 1800s, you know, than the first time they met back in the Stargazer books or whatever. And um, so she's and she's seeing this path that he's going down and kind of has to be that voice of reason for him or the kind of like you said, the kind of gentle nudge that a parent would give to a kid um, to, to let him live his life, but still kind of gently push him in that direction to the point where by the end of the book, she's, she kind of feels comfortable that he's now as, as close as he's going to get to the person that she, that he will meet in the person or that, you know, (laughs) he will be in the future when she meets him in the past or however confusing that can be. Um, but yeah, I thought, um, there was just enough Guinan in this book. I feel like they could have really gone overboard with her, um, had her a huge part of this mission or whatever, but I, I felt like it was uh, kind of the Goldilocks scenario with, with Guinan. She was just right.
0: No, I think that's a great point actually with, with Guinan there and um, that, you know, her connection with Picard and knowing what he's going to be and kind of understanding to that, you know, time could be thrown off if he doesn't turn into the person he needs to be. And in some ways, she's a part of that, you know, and giving him just the nudge that he needs. Um, And all of that, I think, really worked well. And I like what you said, too, that she's used perfectly, I think. Like, it's just enough. Um, And I think too much of Guinan is, it's almost like, too much of yoda in star wars like i don't really want to know about yoda's background because there's something more exciting about the character being more of an enigma Mm -hmm. than completely somebody that i know every single thing about and so i think gynan in many ways is the same with uh you know star trek the next generation I, i like that we don't know everything about her and so um yeah i mean i i feel like we really haven't had too much about the book that we didn't like so far, which has been a nice change of pace for us here on Literary Tracks recently. But what do you think that you would rate the Buried
1: Age? Yeah, this um you know, yeah, it's especially when you compare it to a few of the other ones we've read, it's um very, very good. But I um I would uh give this one uh three and a half information storage black holes. I think, um, you know, we've, we've kind of dumped a lot of praise on this book and and there isn't a lot I'd say that's, that's really bad per se, but you know, the first half or so is, is a bit slow. There was, there was some, it took me some time to really get into this. I flew through the last probably hundred pages of it, but, um, you know, the, the first, the first bit of it was a bit slow, but yeah, I think, um, yeah, take out some of the sciency bits. Take uh, you know, I don't know what else to say. We've said it all, I guess. I'll just go with three and a half. Where Where did you <laughs> land?
0: <laughs> you know, I I had this book originally rated, I think, as three on Goodreads, and aside from my frustrations uh, that I mentioned, you know, just about it being there too much science, you kind of get bogged down in that. I feel like I'm going to be generous and give this book a four instead of a three and a half because, and maybe it's because like, and maybe it's because of the previous experience that we've been (laughs) having with the books recently. But I think that the thematic elements in the book really do come together in a way where, you know, all of the storylines are kind of pointing towards the same thematic elements. You know, again, when we realize that Picard and her people, and Ariel's people are basically two sides of the same coin. I mean, that's great. You know, you're getting to see it from from different perspectives and and why that type of uh, thought process happens in people, which is awesome. Uh, so, in all all in all, I'm I'm going to go with you know four out of five uh, black hole repositories.
1: Well, it's nice to have. Uh something with a lot of meat that, uh, we can talk about, you know, we don't talk for 50 minutes about books that we're giving one and two stars to. So, you know, it's a good one and, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to what we got coming up. Um, I think cast no shadow is our next one kind of getting back to the TOS era and, uh, you know, some other good things coming up.
0: Yeah. I can't wait, Casey. Uh, I, I think we've got a lot of fun stuff coming up here in the fall for everybody to check out. I am very excited to to dive into the Monster Maroon era with Cast No Shadow. But before we get to that, uh, where can everybody find you, Casey, if they want to see what else you've got going on and maybe wanted to connect with you about Star Trek books or anything else?
1: Yeah, I am pretty active on uh, Goodreads or as active as one can be on Goodreads, I guess. And um, also on Letterboxd, Twitter, Instagram. All at Knitting Trekkie, and then you can also find me on Facebook in the Babel Conference, uh, which I would definitely encourage people to go to and uh, you know like and follow and comment. We'd love to hear what people thought about this book and any others. And uh, Matt, where can people find you when you are searching the galaxy for this elusive black hole? Well,
0: uh, when I'm not doing that, you can find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 uh, You can also find me, of course, here on the network in the 602 Club talking about all those fandoms outside of Star Trek we love, so we hope you'll do that. And then I'm doing Warp 5, The Orb, Saddle Up, and The Artificial Tango. You'll also, of course, find me on the Nerd Party Network talking about uh, two different things. One is Harry Potter and Owl Post talked about every single chapter of the series one chapter at a time and you'll find me on aggressive negotiations talking about star wars with john mills but thank you so much for joining us and until next time live long and read on you call that light reading to each his own number one